This is episode 61 of the Immunology Podcast, Pancreatic Cancer with Dr. Vinod Balachandran. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rad. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Vinod Balachandran from Memorial Sloan Kettering on the podcast to talk about his research on rare subgroups of pancreatic cancer patients with exceptional long-term survival. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights of immunology news coming up, but first... Jason, don't forget, IUIS 2023 is coming up this year, December, November, December. We are looking forward to attending the International Congress of Immunology in Cape Town, South Africa, from November 27 to December 2nd. Interested? Learn more at IUIS2023.org. Oh, I'm excited. I'll be taking the longest flight of my life to get there. Well, good for you. So how many hours? Uh, well, the first one's just an hour and a half to Atlanta, but Atlanta to Cape Town is 16 hours in the air. Oh, six. I mean, 16 hours is actually quite, you know what? It's actually a long flight. I'm not going to. I actually think it's longer than your flight from Amsterdam to uh, D.C. Oh, yeah. An Amsterdam D.C. flight is not that bad. It's like eight, nine hours. But, you know, I've taken the 14 hour flight to Buenos Aires from Amsterdam. So, you know, it's quite decent. I have to say that's 16 hours. But I hear that you're going to be comfortable. So that's that's I don't feel bad. I am going to go in bougie class. What a, what a bourgeois you are. Hey, look, I'm that, old. My hip will act up if I don't have a comfortable seat. That's true. You need, well, I know one of the papers today, I, I, wanna, I might have a solution for you, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Oh, you're going to solve my uh, budding hip arthritis after yeah, age three? Maybe. Uh, at least the cognitive issues, maybe. We'll see. Oh, the cognitive. <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. But uh, yeah, so very exciting. And so what's what's new? What's coming up in, in your side of the, of the oh, world? It's back to the regular grindstone for us. So, you know, back back to school in a few weeks after American Labor Day in early September. So the kids go back to school, which means they don't have to have different camp schedules all week for the entire summer and have uh, Uber drivers for parents running oh, around. Finally, finally, you'll get to rest a little bit. Yeah, school is actually the less chaotic time. Also, oddly, at work with vacations, everyone takes all these different vacations that's never synced, so you can't ever get anything done for about three months mm. or two months. Yeah. Like July and August, yeah. it's just like, maybe the person's here, maybe they're not. Well, I wish you not the best coming back to normalcy. I still have a short holiday plan, so I will make my way down south to an up to Switzerland to finally see the mountains again and enjoy you know, thinner air for once in a while. You're not going to go in the winter and ski? Uh, well, you know, the winter is far away. I don't think I'll make it to the winter if I don't take some days off now. So I figured I'll check it out in the summer first. Uh, and then we'll see what I do in the winter. I also like, I mean, the mountains are great for summer. I don't know. Like, there's not only a winter destination. Oh, they're nice. True. But like, I mean, my goal is to ski the Swiss Alps in the winter. It's one of the things I want to do. And I haven't yet. Well, well, you know. Just text me. We can go in January, February. Just let me know. I'll find. I'll, I'll do some scouting during my time there. I, we will be staying at like a, at a ski slope in a ski resort that is not for skiing right now. But yeah, it's just mostly about being above sea level for a change. Um, and I was hoping for better weather, but doesn't seem like it's gonna be the case. But it doesn't matter. In any case, why don't we get started? All right. So how are you gonna fix my memory, Brenda? Oh. I might have found the fountain of youth. Well, I'll get started today because I think you're very curious. And um, this story, you know, it's always important, very cool. There's certain types of stories that sometimes you you need to always keep a skeptic eye on because this, this story is pretty interesting. And, you know, I think a lot of people are behind results like this. So basically... Um, the paper I am uh, talking today about um, is called Platelet Factors Attenuate Inflammation and Rescue Cognition in Aging. So 
uh, first author Adam uh, Schurer and Patrick Ventura from the lab of Saul Villera and at UCSF at the University of California in San Francisco. It's published in Nature on the 16th of August. And, you know, I I want to tell this story, but always I think it's important to take it with a grain of salt. There is obviously a patent associated with this research and and there's a lot of billionaires around, you know, looking for the founder of youth. But, you know, it's interesting. And I think, uh, you know, we'll see how the story evolves with, with time. Basically, the story, they are studying a well-known phenomena by now, which is the fact that if you share um, blood between a young and a, a young uh, individual with an old individual, the old individual benefits from the quote-unquote young blood. And this has been shown in uh, mouse systems with blood transfusions, but more specifically, it seems to be plasma. Uh, the plasma components are sufficient to mediate most of these um, kind of rejuvenate, rejuvenating effect of young blood. And there has been some, you know, models suggesting, you know, uh, that it can reverse uh, impairments like age-related impairments in neurogenesis, synaptic plasticity, cognitive function, you know, all the the whole the whole uh, suite of things you want to get your brain uh, better when you age. So that's what I, I mean. I have to say, uh, you know, disclaimer, I'm a little bit skeptical. I think there's a lot of interest, a lot of like, if you read Twitter, half of it is about, you know, billionaires trying to make themselves younger. Uh, you know, my epigenetic age is eight years old or something like that, which I think is, is a little bit absurd. But let's go to the facts. They have these mice, basically they have old mice, uh, young mice, and they prepare from the blood of young mice, uh, like vampires, they make uh, blood plasma preparates and they have a version with and a version without platelets. Um, and they have as a control kind of saline uh, infusions. And they inject old mice uh, over 24 days, uh, just as a fairly short intervention, I would say. Um, and they look, we focus on the hippocampus, uh, which is region of the brain that has been apparently suggested to be particularly sensitive to aging. And, you know, it has to do with memory and many of the things that are first start to decline as we age. Um, and, you know, what they see is that they find they do all this RNA-seq and they see particularly particular genes and especially some genes related to an inflammatory response uh, that are differentially expressed compared to saline injections. And they see a decrease in you know, some of the genes they mentioned and that kind of pop up uh, throughout the, the work are TNF, uh, a, a gene from a complement gene called uh, C, uh, C1QB uh, uh, and CD11B, uh, this myeloid marker. And they see, you know, other inflammatory markers that they have a list, that, you know, they do this whole analysis. Um, and they kind of, you know, they kind of use this as a model. So, you know, here's what we see. We see reduction in inflammation in the hippocampus in these all aged mice when we uh, transfuse them, when you inject them, not even transfuse, they're just injecting uh, plasma from young mice. And so they, they um, zero, into, zero down into one particular molecule, which is a chemokine called PF4 which is released from platelets and is involved in coagulation and has immunodulatory function. The truth is that they kind of jump into PF4. Not, it's not really clear why they jump into PF4. They're just like, it is known that PF4 is part of, you know, mediates part of this inflammatory response and they just like zero in on it and they like really continue their work on PF4. So again, I'm like, I feel like they're just like wanting to justify working with PF4. That's probably where the patent is. Um, and they they say that it has been involved in the beneficial ex effects, for example, of exercise, and it is known that it has, you know, anti-aging anti properties, things like that. Um, and they show that old mice have less PF4 than young mice in, the, in their plasma, and they verify it in their own experiments. Um, so basically, they start administering the mice with PF4. And it looks like this is decreasing some of these inflammatory markers that they see in the hippocampus of the aged mice alone, without needing to like do the whole plasma thing. Um, and, you know, they look at several things and basically, you know, they try, you know, 
they see certain genes that are inflammatory genes that are unregulated and they seem to have some uh, improvements in synaptic plasticity probably. And uh, when it comes to the immune system itself, they see some uh, that some of the markers that are some of the changes that are associated with an aged immune system seem to be at least partially reversed by the injection of this PF4. Uh, particularly the increase in the myeloid lymphoid ratio. So usually you lose lymphocytes as you, as you age, especially also naive type of lymphocytes. You do en end up accumulating kind of effector memory lymphocytes as you age. That's a you know, characteristic of an aged immune system. And, you know, it's amazing. They, a lot of these markers seem to be reduced. I mean, not gone, but they do seem to find differences uh, um, to, uh, pointing towards a rejuvenated "quote unquote" immune system when injecting PF4, they also see they also had a PF4 uh, knockout mice, and they see that you know for some of these markers that they see increase in age, uh, that it is worse that PF4 knockout mice have like higher levels of some of these markers, including C1Q and CD68, microglia with CD68. So. Um, when it comes to like the, the 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 I think one of the major issues, which is kind of the cognitive benefit of this um, treatment, I guess it's hard to make you know cognitive analysis on mice. It's not like you can ask them, "What did you eat yesterday? Do you remember your the you know the, the, this the string of numbers?" But there are some more or less standardized methods of analyzing cognitive function in mice, and they seem to find some levels and some of the mark some of their analyses which I'm not an expert in mouse uh, behavioral studies but they do seem to find some I think modest differences but you know I'm not so familiar with how these experiments usually go uh, and when it comes to how the mice react to their environment they see some one one particular thing that they do is this novel object bias in which you know the mice are more are very attentive to our new stuff so they they notice things that are new and they give more attention this is a kind of a cognitive a marker of cognitive function and they also have some memory ways of measuring memory and they see some you know i think is modest but they see some improvement in this cognitive function studies that they do in the mice so basically, they they really show that you know they 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 make the point that this PF4 is a major mediator in the loss of the progressive loss of PF4 is a mediator in this inflammation that affects the brain of older mice, and that it can be at least partially reverted by adding PF4 on top, like just injecting PF4. And they show using CXCR3 knockout mice. Uh, that some of these effects of PF4 is mediated by CXCR3, uh, sorry, CXCR3 that is expressed on immune cells, uh, and that's probably partly how it's acting on the immune system. So basically, that's kind of the idea. So I don't know, maybe we're going to start all injecting ourselves with PF4, um, uh, you know, to prevent cognitive decline. What do you think? Would you take sure, it? It's already happening among those billionaires. Yeah, I mean, I did like there's this whole story of like Jeff Bezos, you know, buys plasma from young people and injects itself. I mean, there, I'm not, I don't think that's true. I don't, I don't know at this point. I hear it such insane things sometimes. I think there's definitely people who inject plasma or especially yeah. to damage joints and stuff to try to get the cartilage to regrow. That is really a okay. Yep. Well. This is the next next thing they're gonna just be injecting PF4. Now we can go recombinant. Oh yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Get your home PF4 kit to purify your own recombinant protein. Yeah. Just make sure you don't have any LPS contamination in that injection because that's gonna that's gonna suck if you put it in your cartilage or something. I don't have a segue here because I'm talking about influenza. I mean, it's bad for old people. It's also you know. Maybe. Yeah. It has to like, I, yeah, I guess I need my flu shot cause I'm aging too. Sure. We'll just, we'll just keep piling on me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is in nature immunology. It is published August 17th. It's baseline innate and T cell populations are correlates of protection against symptomatic influenza virus infection, independent of serology. First author is Robert Metalman. Uh, last authors are multiple Richard J. Webby, Q. Su Huang, and Paul G. Thomas, and the Shivers 2 investigation team, because someone has an acronym for some study here. Um, 
trying to parse out this paper, it, it's both interesting and you know, coming up in nature and immunology and also it's one of those papers I'm surprised we didn't already know this about. And so it's a little bit duh, but apparently we, no one's ever done the work to determine this before. So they took 206 people that were either vaccinated or not vaccinated for influenza and in different cohorts and looked at their immune cells over time, pre-infection, post-infection to influenza, symptomatic, non-symptomatic. So that's where the real cool part of this is this data set is really awesome, right? You have a really cool data set, which I think is most of it. So if you like this or need this type of data, if you research, you should just go get the paper or pull the data for it. Because um, the conclusions I'm going to get through real quick, which is that um, vaccine-driven immunity is largely highly humoral, right? Very B-cell-driven. But the number one protective thing they see for preventing symptoms, while B cells help, the number one thing we see for preventing any illness at all is actually adaptive T cell immunity and some, some innate immunity. But the big signals are from some CD8 cells and some CD4 cells, depending on the subsets. The biggest theme that kind of popped up was, was CD4 and CD8 T cells. So cellular immunity versus humoral immunity, right? So humoral immunity, definitely we know influenza vaccines and just humoral immunity in general will, will prevent you from getting as sick, but it doesn't seem to prevent you from getting sick. But if you have T cells already primed against the flu of choice, either through a previous vaccine but most of the vaccines aren't very good at it, or you've had it before and you just are that way now, your outcomes in terms of do you get sick or not are much you know, better. And so the real point of this is that maybe vaccines for flu should, instead of being just this humoral strategy, should also start looking at uh, ways to generate some cellular immunity as well, which is arguments for things like mRNA-based T-cell vaccine or uh, mRNA-based influenza vaccines and other such. So that's real take home from this is that cellular immunity matters too and that our vaccine strategies up until recently have largely been humoral in nature and that has some inherent drawbacks for some of these respiratory viruses. You don't get the full shebang from it. So there you go, that's distilling it down. But if you want this data set of every t cell population from different patients tracked based on did they vaccinate or not and status of symptoms or not. They have that in this paper. And that's what the paper's bulk of the data is, but not the bulk of the conclusions. Yeah, I mean, I guess after all I've read about the response to SARS-CoV-2 and how much T cell immunity has been kind of propelled to uh, the attention of people lately, I'm not surprised. But right. But interestingly, not done yet in flu until now. So there yeah. you go. Okay. So this this uh, flu vaccines. Uh, what is their what 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 is the format that these vaccines have that they study? That's the standard IM flu vaccine. Intramuscular. Yeah. They're. But okay, sorry, are are they recombinant or are they inactivate a virus? What are they? Oh, I think uh, flu is dead virus, if I remember right. That's grown up in uh, eggs. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so really attenuated, attenuated, and not attenuated, dead, dead. Okay. They can't come back. No attenuated coming back resurrection. It's just dead. Dead, dead virus. I mean, can a virus be dead if it was never really alive? You know, we should have a whole podcast where we discuss the, the, the living nature, not of uh, viruses. Oh, no. I think there are other podcasts that do that regularly. <laughs> but we haven't done it, Brenda. No, that's true. We should get a virologist just to, just to have fun with it. We should. That'd be a great episode. All right. Um, then let me... Talk about my second story of the day. Um, also very interesting, a little bit quite complex, and also I think a great uh, source, like resource for people studying this. 
The, this article is called Mapping the Tisa Repertoire to a Complex Gut Bacterial Community. So it's down your alley, I think. Right up the alley. Oh, yeah, this made rounds in my, my workplace. Sorry, listeners, up your alleys, not down your alley. Oh, gosh. This is English prepositions. Okay. So um, first author is uh, first author Kasuki Nagashima uh, from the lab of Michael, Michael uh, Fiesbach uh, from the uh, Stanford University. Um, and I mean, again, this is another story about, you know, one of my favorite subjects said, how do T-cells see the world? And in this particular case is how do T-cells interact with bacterial uh, colonization in our guts? And you know, we know, of course, that bacterial uh, bacteria in the gut are very important uh, to, and they're part of the normal development of an immune system. You know, you need bacterial colonization for a proper development of your adaptive immune response. And we do know that, you know, T cells must be recognizing something on this bacteria. And we also know that certain bacterial strains are more likely to elicit T cell responses. And, and oftentimes many of the responses are, you know, um, symbiotic and are good and, and you develop a, a healthy repertoire of T cells in your gut. That are, this is part of your normal development. And so, but what is not really easy to, to find out is exactly how are the T cells seeing the bacteria, especially given the fact that bacteria are not eukaryotic cells. They are not presenting antigen. Um, but we know that there's many, many, uh, mostly CD4 helper cells that are responding to their presence. So clearly there must be uh, peptides being presented on, you know, antigen presenting cells and they're being recognized by specific T-cell clones um, and that they are responding to this um, signal and they are establishing themselves in the, in the, in the immune system around the, 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 the guts and the colon and the small intestines. So what they do is like, how can we understand exactly what these T cells are seeing? How can we kind of pick apart a little bit the complexity because of one of the big issues with microbiome studies, and as you well known, is that, you know, normal microbiomes have huge complexity. And often this complexity is very important to how the whole thing works out. So even there's not the saying to study a mono, like just a, a mouse colonized one, one bacteria is going to give you completely different results to the normal situation, which you have, you know, thousands of different types of bacteria colonizing your gut. So what they do is that they generate a, uh, they colonize germ-free mice with specific bacterial communities of, they have, they start with two different ones that have uh, roughly a hundred different bacterial strains, defined, well-known. Um, and they use this to study the T-cell repertoire that occurs uh, after the establishment of this of these bacterial communities, and basically they quantify that they, they look at the at the at the T cells in this mice and the, the helper T cells and the regulatory T cells, and they're trying to understand how many of these are you know responding to specific bacterial antigens, how many of these, are, and what kind of uh, what kind of profiles T cell profiles you obtain as as a consequence of this. So. There's a lot, they do a lot of analysis and a lot of work. And I'm not going to go a lot into details because, I mean, it can be get a little bit um, dense. But what I thought was really cool uh, is that what they see is that, in fact, when they um, they can find you know, within this the, the expanded T cells, they find T cells that are, they, 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 they uh, sequence many T cell, uh, individual T cells. And they find certain clones that are expanded. Not a lot. Some of them is like two. They for for it to be expanded, it has to be present at least twice. So it's not a huge expansion. But they do see that from all of these clones that they pick up, they can show that some of them do can do recognize bacterial products. So if they prepare hybridomas from these clones and they co-culture them with products from the, all the different bacterial strains presented on IPCs, they show that at least some of these clones are, you know, demonstrably recognizing bacterial peptides. And I think what I thought was very really cool is one, one of the uh, families that uh, affect, that have 
So they, there's clearly some, uh, they, they, they are not species specific, this recognition. So you have one T-cell clone that is going to be recognizing m products from derived from more than one bacterial strain, which shows that they are recognizing some shared antigen. And I think there was, for me, the most interesting part was this uh, Firmicutes-derived um, um, antigen. And it was very widely expressed and it was very widely recognized by T-cells. And we know that this this particular uh, genre, the Firmicutes, is very, is, is, is very well known to interact with the immune system and to colonize the, the the gut and to really uh, initiate the the uh, proper maturing of the immune system in the gut. So basically, what they see is that what is that the, what are the, what is the antigen that has been recognized, and they can go all the way to pinpoint two specific well, one specific protein, um, one epitope that uh, is is derived from a protein that is very highly expressed from in these bacterial in these bacterial proteins. And that is very antigenic. And most of the T cells that are recognizing this bacterial uh, strains are particularly picking up this one peptide from this highly expressed uh, protein in this bacteria. And that is, this is kind of shared by the whole family, by many bacterial strains. And that this is a major uh, immune recognition site for T cell responses. Uh, after colonization by this particular bacterial strain. But that, on, and I think although it seems like a rather modest result, I think it's really cool because it really gives you a kind of straight line between the, the, the kind of antigens being expressed by the bacteria and how this affect the development of the T cells in the, in the area. And they also see that for certain bacteria, for certain uh, antigens, um, you have you they can see that some of the T cells they are they don't always they they the the way they develop some some of them become regulatory T cells and certain antigens seem to have a tendency of inducing more regulatory T cells than others. And this is probably part of like in, in a simplified way what happens when you're colonized by you know just wild type regular bacterial communities. And I think it's really cool because it tries to reduce a little bit the the very large complexity in, in, a, in a normal setting, but still gets really clear results. And I think it's going to be, it's a great way of understanding how uh, the gut microbiome affects adaptive responses and the kind of the homeostat homeostatic condition in the gut. Well, all, all I'm going to say is because this ventures into uh, work territory to me is I'm a very big fan of Firmicutes. So it's cool to see how they're sculpting the immune system. Yeah. Yeah. So this was pretty seminal work in the microbiome field that popped up. So I am honored that you covered it for me. Well, it was a pleasure to read. And it had T cells. So it's really the combination of both worlds. Right. I like it because it's like, yeah, there's microbiome, you know, affects, affects the immune system. But this is a really clear mechanistic way. Like you really shows you what happens under the hood in a way that you can understand and you can quantify and you can, you know, trace back. I really like that. It's very, it was a very elegant set of experiments. I really liked it. Yeah, that's super cool. All right. So last paper of the day, also in nature, endothelial aryl hydrocarbon receptor activity prevents lung barrier disruption in viral infection. First author is Jack Major. Last author is Andreas Wack. Also coming out here on 16th of August. So if you're not in the know, the aerohydrocarbon receptor, AHR, this is a receptor that's often activated by dietary supplements. It's had a lot or just things that you eat in your diet, indoles. And it's had a lot of research in it lately. There's a microbiome link with it. There is a component where it's really important for barrier function in the gut and quieting down the immune system. And so they're taking this notion that, hey, it's important in the intestine. What about other epithelial tissues? And there's a lot of crosstalk. There's a lot of similarity here. And they do a series of elegant experiments, um, both knocking out the enzyme that turns off the molecules that signal this receptor, which is a, which is a cytochrome 
So getting rid of the metabolism of the receptor of the ligands so that the ligands more active and then using the knockouts of the receptor and then tissue specific knockouts and inducibles pick all that to figure out what this receptor is doing in the lung and they identify it that it's actually most active not in epithelial cells in the lung but in the endothelial cells those are some vessels that transport blood back and forth and there's a lot of them in the lung obviously because you're having air exchange with your blood so there's lots of endothelial cells and they isolated the fact that during influenza infection influenza in general dampens the aryl hydrocarbon receptor response leading to uh you know, uh, lung wall leak, inflammation, and all of the badness that you think of with interferon one signaling. If you tune up the aryl hydrocarbon receptor signaling by knocking out the cytochrome that metabolizes it, you get protection from injury in the lung from influenza. And if you knock out the receptor, you get worse injury in the lung. If you feed mice a diet high in the uh, metabolites that you're in the in the pro molecules that generate the signaling when metabolizing your gut, you get more protection. And if you knock out the receptor, you lose that effect. And then they isolate this to uh, some transcriptal net, transcriptional networks that's called an appellin uh, peptide system as being one of the downstream targets of the hydrocarbon receptor that's really important for this process in terms of maintaining gut and uh, maintaining uh, lung and epithelial integrity and dampening lung tissue inflammation. So essentially they're finding that this is a central molecule, but that it's activated on the endothelial cells, which then signal to the epithelial cells of the lung to hang on tight and not uh, leak and inflame and all of that. And there you go. So, trying to sum it up it's worth read it gets in you know they have beautiful some beautiful if staining they really map it out using their their mouse models it's actually only a four-figure paper so it's it's a shorter nature paper uh, but it's to the point and really gets into um how it works okay so the um, these mouse models are they kind of like complete knockout or like specific knockout in the If they've done both. So they showed that if they, you do it in both or if you knock it out in the endothelial cells, it's the same effect to the point being that whatever else is in the rest of the tissue does not matter in the mouse matter here. Right. They did, they did, they did knockouts. They did inducible knockout so they could turn it off after infection and watch the mice get worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I guess it's also very important, especially in the case. So it's, it's something that's intrinsic to the endothelium and not mediated by immune cells that that lack AHR. It's just literally those cells that are. Those cells are signaling through it, creating downstream signaling that affects the environment around them. Okay, got it. All right, so and what are we all getting? Um, do we need to get some ag uh, agonists? They're looking at it. It's becoming quite the uh, drug target lately. It's kind of the, the next frontier of immune regulatory drug targets is AHR, at least in my opinion being talked about quite a bit yeah i mean and also i think this idea of reducing inflammation especially in the lungs like even if it's an infection like in like well, SARS-CoV I think we've learned a lot that how important it is to reduce inflammation to keep the the, the tissue because even if like even if the inflammation is too much inflammation is maladaptive I mean it's part of the immune response but too much of it is not good so you need to get that checked indeed uh-huh. indeed no i completely agree it's you have to it's all about regulation um well i don't have a fun segue here either or segue list <laughs> today um i guess the company also went out of business so maybe there you know we can the company went out of business oh, yeah i don't think they make those segue bikes anymore oh no it's not that's not the company you know i think you're talking about uh, uh the electric bike company that no no the ones that you lean forward on they're not bikes but they're those like like the, the you know there's those platforms that look like a t with the two wheels yeah, that segue they did go out of business yeah. yeah yeah who would have thought those two wheeled uh transport whatever they were when were not as i know long-term I success. they're only wanted to segue joust and never got to Segway joust, yes, yeah, I'm sure you did. 
you, you can imagine what that would look like. Uh, yes. Uh, ridiculous. That's, that's, that's how, why don't you just in bikes? You can get some bike adjusting. And then... Oh, that sounds so much worse. Anyway. I mean, can't you bike without it? without your hands and you can for short periods of time, I suppose. All right. Well, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Vinod Balachandran at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in just a moment. But before we get to that, this week, we'd like to remind our listeners about Pancreatic Cell News, one of stem cells free weekly scientific newsletters. Pancreatic Cell News summarizes all the latest research news, jobs, and events in pancreatic cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Tuesday. Save time and keep current with Pancreatic Cell News. Subscribe for free at pancreaticcellnews.com. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to our second part of the show, our interview. Today, we are talking to Dr. Vinod Balachandran, who is an attending surgeon and the lab head at the Human Oncology and Pathogenesis Program at Memorial Sloan Catering Cancer Center in New York City. His lab studies immunotherapy of cancer, and I personally really like his uh, recent work uh, on a clinical trial using mRNA vaccination to treat pancreatic cancer, which is... Uh, I think a very uh, critical cancer type uh, with very little treatment options. So I'm very excited uh, to talk about this this trial, how to target new antigens of pancreatic cancer, and what he has learned from his work on this topic. Dr. Balachandran, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. All right, Brenda, you're really excited. So please take take the first question here. Well, I guess it would be nice to get our listeners settled on a little bit of what your research is about um, and what excites you about. I would start with your recent uh, uh, phase one trial, which you published the results uh, a couple of months ago, and why it is, an import is it important to look into neoantigens in pancreatic cancer and maybe other types of cancer? Sure. So I'll, as you sort of uh, alluded to already, you know, pancreatic cancer is um, one of the leading challenges, I think, in all of oncology, soon to become the second leading cause of cancer death in the United States by 2025. And this is largely because the current treatments for pancreatic cancer remain uh, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation. And the more recent advances in um, cancer therapeutics, namely targeted therapies and immunotherapies, really have not been successful at all. So because of this, we are still sort of stuck um, in treatments uh, from many decades ago. And survival rates with pancreatic cancer, despite our best current treatments, remain only approximately 10%. So it really points to an urgent need for new therapies for pancreatic cancer and really urgent need to improve outcomes. So this has really been our motivation to, to study this disease. So you started some already some years ago, so you showed that uh, new antigens could actually play a role in how the immune system targets uh, pancreatic cancer. You looked into uh, patients that had responded, I don't remember if it was for immunotherapy or that actually had a progress better uh, on, on upon therapy and you took that you that that learning into a, a clinical trial using mRNA vaccination with new antigens with personalized new antigens so maybe can you tell us a little bit about how what what did you learn about this how how do, do these new antigens maybe talk a little bit about where they come from and how do they relate to pancreatic cancer survival and how did you think about harnessing this for therapy? Sure. So as I mentioned, um, about 90% of pancreatic cancer patients die dis, uh, despite our best current treatments. But uh, remarkably, um, there's a 10% of pancreatic cancer patients who get the same treatments as everyone else, but survive long-term. And why this was unknown. Um, there had been several hypotheses been proposed, but really, um, more detailed immunological mechanisms of a potential uh, immune-mediated long-term survival was really not known. So back in 2017, uh, we published a paper on this where uh, for that, what we had done was systematically uh, collected uh, tumors, blood uh, of these patients 
and looked uh, to see what might be different about them compared to the other 90% of pancreatic cancer patients. And the, um, the main take-home message from uh, what we found in that paper was, number one, uh, when you looked at uh, CD8 T cells in their primary tumors, uh, in these long-term survivors of pancreatic cancer compared to stage and treatment-matched short-term survivor controls, there's around a 10, a 10 to 12-fold increased density of CD8s. So they have a lot more CD8s. But the, this, was, this per se was not um, that surprising, and uh, others had demonstrated uh, similar results in the past. Uh, but the antigens were not really known. And the prevailing belief had been that lowly mutated tumors like pancreatic cancer were unlikely to generate mutation-derived antigens. Um, and this was sort of the gestalt at the time. Um, we, we thought uh, perhaps um, given the fact that uh, tumor mutational burden does not um, very strongly correlate with um, a spontaneous immune activity, which would suggest that not all mutations have equal immunogenicity, uh, that uh, in lowly mutated tumors, perhaps this might be the ideal uh, spot or clinical scenario to number one, uh, see if uh, mutation-derived uh, antigens could be immunogenic in a lowly mutated cancer, and number two, uh, develop a, a potentially an antigen hierarchy to then, you could then apply it to more highly mutated tumors. So what we had found was um, that uh, uh, we think contrary to what the prevailing belief was that the spontaneous immune reactivity of T cells uh, in these patients' tumors were directed at uh, mutation-derived neoantigens, which were primarily passenger mutation-derived. So I think this was the motivation to, to, to the hypothesis that if this is what is happening in the um, best-case scenario, if you will, namely you have a spontaneous immune response to a passenger mutation and you have long-term outcome, um, could you replicate this with a therapy by delivering the antigens? So talk, talking therapy now with this phase one, you're, you're using a drug, as far as I can tell, this, it's this autogene, I'm not going to pronounce this right, Sivumurin. Did I get that right in pronunciation? Close enough, yes. That is something you guys are developing yourselves in-house at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Is that my understanding is correct? No, this was a collaboration between Memorial Sloan Kettering, Genentech, and BioNTech. So the drug here in this case, uh, autogene Sivumaran, which is an individualized um, uridine um, RNA uh, lipoplex uh, nanoparticle uh, vaccine, uh, this was developed by BioNTech. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask how you were going to be manufacturing drugs for people as a university, which I know you can do, it's just very hard uh, being a drug manufacturing myself. And then you answer the question, which is, you didn't, no, which, you is didn't. The, which is the, the, the much easier answer. Right, right. In this case, uh, this was a very productive partnership between MSK, uh, our group at MSK, and uh, the groups at Genentech and Biotech. Yes. I remember reading that uh, production started around the pandemic. What, how did you guys manage that? Because then I guess all the mRNA production capacity was diverted to a... Uh, maybe more acute uh, uh, issue at the moment? Uh, it was certainly an interesting time. Um, we, um, we published our first um, findings of spontaneous T-cell reactivity to mutation-derived neoantigens in long-term survivors of pancreatic cancer in 2017. And that was the motivation to um, the motivation for this clinical trial of individualized mRNA vaccination for pancreatic cancer. And the reason for individualization uh, was because these targets that we found to be immunogenic in these long-term survivors were passenger mutation-derived. Mm. Um, we did look for driver mutation-derived uh, reactivity, but we did not find any, at least um, as the dominant endogenous responses. So our... Um, philosophical view on this was that the vaccines should, the, the ideal vaccine antigens would mimic the endogenous antigens. So for this, this would require um, individualization uh, of the vaccine. And we thought that the ideal um, 
platform for rapid custom cancer vaccination in the clinic was to use mRNA. So this was the uh, genesis behind this collaboration between our group, BioNTech and Genentech. So um, we designed the trial. We, in fact, treated our first patient on this clinical trial in December of 2019. So this was before the pandemic. And shortly thereafter, found ourselves having to uh, conduct this complex trial in the midst of a pandemic. And this trial was complex because, you know, what we, it requires is uh, we do surgery um, on pancreatic cancer patients to remove their cancers here in New York. And then within 72 hours, we shipped their tumors uh, to colleagues at BioNTech in Mainz, Germany who then sequence the tumors, identify the neoantigens, and custom manufacture the individualized vaccines. So while that's ongoing back in New York, we treat patients with their first uh, uh, treatment, which is anti-PDL1 blocking antibody. Uh, this is at nine weeks after surgery, uh, at six weeks after surgery, rather. Um, and then at nine weeks after surgery, they receive the first uh, of their custom-made vaccines. Nine weeks is a very decent time, I would say. Right. I mean, our one of the reasons for selecting uh, the RNA platform was because for individualization, we felt this platform could be iteratively improved and accelerated. And we know we suspected uh, at the time that RNA vaccines could be made very fast. Others had. Um, shown this already, we had were convinced, or we were certainly encouraged by their findings, and we now I think know on a more spectacular way that you can make an RNA vaccine very fast. Um, this was not this knowledge was not available at the time at which we designed the trial and we initiated it, but thankfully this knowledge became available through the trial. So actually. Um, I was mentioning that the first patient was treated in December of 2019. And then in 2020, um, we had the pandemic. As you know, New York was quite um, affected uh, by this. So this was an epicenter of the pandemic in 2020, which caused a lot of clinical disruptions for us. You know, we had hospital shutdowns, research institution shutdowns. There were also global supply chain disruptions, which was quite important for this trial, which involved um, real-time cross-Atlantic transfer of patient material and drug. And of course, like you mentioned, BioNTech had the added distraction now to make vaccines to save the world from COVID. Um, but actually, um, thankfully, um, despite the challenges by the pandemic, the teams were quite fantastic and um, were in fact able to not slow the trial down during the pandemic, but in fact accelerate the trial to complete it a full year ahead of schedule. So this was a testament to the team's commitment to this. Yeah, well, I was going to add is that uh, usually your phase three and then your, you know, your phase three manufacturing, you want to look like your commercial manufacturing, and that's often done on a whole other I want to say manufacturing plant, but a whole other universe of manufacturing than your phase one, two. And sometimes phase two is a bridge. So I'm not surprised BioNTech could deliver, for instance, in this case, right? Because you're going to have, and also Moderna is not involved in this part of it, but like fundamentally where you're making your phase three for their one trial, because they just did one trial, right? They did a big phase three and went through essentially. I mean, they did earlier ones, but like the big thing that saved the world, that whole plant and everything is over in the corner, <laughs> only doing that and is made to scale for that because you want to, you apply for your license with the manufacturing that you're going to use versus like small scale, small batch. Yeah. It's not, it's not like you're competing for the same uh, infrastructure in particular. You could be competing for the lipid nanoparticle reagent to get mm. to the supply chain thing, but you're not going to compete for, and the people, but you're not going to compete for the space in the manufacturing line in the same way, which is an interesting thing I've only come to appreciate recently. Before we can, we move on from this. So, what did you see? How did this trial, uh, what are the results of the trial? So the, the, the main questions we wanted to answer in this trial were safety, feasibility, and immunogenicity. Um, first question, uh, were the vaccines um, safe uh, in pancreatic cancer patients? 
the answer to this was yes. This was no surprise because we now know mRNA vaccines have a very good safety profile. And this study confirmed that for the individualized neoantigen vaccines where the targets are in fact uh, individual for every single patient, so every patient's drug is an NF1 drug, this uh, favorable safety profile uh, is similar. So the drugs are very, uh, very safe. The second was feasibility, namely, uh, can you custom make an individualized vaccine fast uh, for one of the most challenging of tumors, pancreatic cancer, which is lowly mutated and stroma rich? So these are additional barriers to potential um, select antigen selection and manufacturing and, and, and incorporation. Um, and our a priori thinking here was, well, if you could do it in pancreatic cancer, hopefully this is a proof of principle that this could be done in virtually any solid cancer uh, with sufficient mutational burden to detect. Um, and the short answer for the feasibility question was, um, it is feasible. Our achieved time to vaccination uh, was within three days of our benchmark time, uh, which was nine weeks after surgery. And this is the first iteration of this of this experience in of uh, individualized RNA vaccination in pancreatic cancer. So I think, uh, and also in er we are in the earlier stages of our learnings on this. So as time, um, as we continue uh, with additional clinical trials, I think our ability to make rapid custom vaccines is um, will will get faster. The third was immunogenicity, namely, um, can vaccines stimulate T cells to recognize mutation-derived neoantigens in a lowly mutated tumor pancreatic cancer? Historically considered not, historically thought to not contain such antigens. And the, and the answer to that is also yes. The mRNA vaccine platform was able to stimulate uh, T cell responses in half of the patients, so 50% of pancreatic cancer patients. It was eight of 16 vaccinated patients in this trial. And not only were the vaccines able to stimulate T cells, the magnitude of the response was very um, substantial, reaching as high as 10% of all peripheral blood T cells. So we think this uh, was quite encouraging. And furthermore, uh, when we looked at the correlation between immunological outcome and clinical outcome at a follow-up of 18 months after surgery, we found that the eight patients who received vaccines and had a strong immune response did not see signs of their cancers recur, in contrast to um, the eight patients who received vaccines and who did not generate a strong immune response, who, in whom six of eight of these patients had their cancers recur on average 13 months after surgery. So suggesting maybe vaccines could delay recurrence of pancreatic cancer after surgery. So, but this of course is a small phase one trial, um, does not establish causation at all. That's an interesting correlation which needs to be further investigated in a follow-up clinical trial, which is actually currently open and enrolling in MSK. I see that as a common um, theme in immunotherapy trials that if strong immune responses usually correlate with with good like like um, what's the word with lack of progression or lack of recurrence. So, of course, as you say, it's a small trial, and you know that uh, you haven't followed up these patients for so long. But we have already results from. Uh, immunotherapies of of other tumors that have started many years ago, and many of these patients that they responded quickly and then they stayed cancer free for a decade or something. So yeah, I think you're bringing an important point um, to whether this in fact in fact represents difference in host biology or in fact an efficacy of the therapeutic. Mm -hmm. And this cannot be deconvoluted in the phase one trial. Um, we really, the only way to rigorously answer this is in a randomized trial, which is what we are currently uh, doing right now. But what was interesting to note in this trial was to answer the question of could perhaps, perhaps the patients who received the vaccines but did not generate an immune response, these non-responders, perhaps 
uh, they were non-responders because they just had poor host immune fitness. And the differences in outcome really just is a reflection of differences in host fitness. So to answer this, we looked to see whether or not these non-responders mounted uh, were able to mount immune responses to a concurrently administered unrelated mRNA vaccine, which was SARS-CoV-2 vaccination, because they had also received SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccines. And interestingly, these non-responders, even though they did not mount an immune response to the experimental vaccine, they mounted um, equivalent immune responses, both cellular and humoral immune responses to the unrelated SARS-CoV-2 vaccination. So we did not, our interpretation of this was that differences in host immune fitness did not seem to correlate with the observed differences in clinical outcome. But you're bringing a very important point. For the responders versus non-responders, do you have any sense or clues about what makes someone one way or the other in terms of like HL7 or HL, you know, HL typing or other genetic markers that you happen to do on people, or is that a paper that's coming out and can't tell me yet? <laughs> or We actually um, did include our initial um, thinking on this topic in our published paper um, in that um, this individualized neoantigen vaccine, which was based upon um, systemic, so intravenous administration of uh, uridine uh, mRNA lipoplex nanoparticles uh, to allow for total body-wide lymphoid organ targeting. Uh, so one feature of this systemic body-wide lymphoid targeting agent is that one of the first, one of the organs that it it requires for maximal immune response is the spleen. And the BioNTech group actually had published evidence of this several years ago in preclinical models that splenectomy abrogates or reduces rather the magnitude of the immune response by about half. Now, Interestingly, in for pancreatic cancer, there, for surgery, there are two types of surgery that we do. One, which involves um, removing the spleen. So it was, even though this is a small clinical trial, it was interesting to note that the non-responders were preferentially enriched, not statistically significantly because of the small sample size, but um, interestingly enriched in patients who had had their spleens removed. So our, based upon the data we had uh, from this trial, our current thinking is that the reason for the 50% response um, is perhaps because of inclusion of patients who had splenectomies. So in the follow-up clinical trial, um, this clinical trial is focused on patients who have their spleens uh, intact. But the splenectomy did not affect the response to SARS vaccination. That's correct, because this is an intramuscular vaccine. Right. So there, the draining lymph node basin is unaffected. That's, that's a very interesting example of how the 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 the, the root of administration has such a strong effect on, on how the immune response is mounted. Right, uh, right. A human model. Right. It was not. It was not um, a complete correlation. So there were patients who had had their spleens removed who were still able to mount a response, but. As I had uh, mentioned, uh, there was preferential enrichment um, in, with splenectomized patients in the non-responder group. So, but I think we would really need larger studies uh, to more accurately characterize this. So you have another trial going on. So we can't talk a lot about it other than there's a trial going on uh, right now, but Part of this work that I think is really interesting is that you come at it as a surgeon, 
and surgeon as a career and having a lab as a career are not as common as other pathways in medicine. So I was wondering if you talk a little bit about how you ended up there and how also how you manage that given the the immense clinical burden that surgery involves. And especially now you're doing clinical trials on drugs, which is very internal medicine-y. Sure. Um, you know, on that topic, I've really been fortunate to have had the privilege to have phenomenal mentors uh, who have been surgeons and scientists who have really um, sparked the scientific curiosity and drive, as well as shown me the power of uh, what a physician scientist and a surgeon scientist can do. So when I um, did my postdoctoral training here at Sloan Kettering, uh, I did a lab run by a surgeon scientist, uh, Ron DiMatteo, who, was a, who studied dendritic cells here in the immunology program. And he um, was the uh, first person who was really able to show me the, the power of uh, lab science and the ability to translate lab science to the clinic. Um, at the time, I also had the privilege of being here when um, immunotherapy in its, uh, it was in its early stages of clinical application of the first successful immunotherapies, but this was prior to them being successful. So this was during the times of the clinical trials of um, the first clinical trials of ipilimumab CTLA-4 blockade done here at Sloan uh, by Jed Wolchuk, another physician scientist, uh, and all when Jim Allison was here at MSK. And I had really the, the um, for, uh, fortune of, of being a fly in the room when they were showing some of these pictures of patients receiving single doses of ipilimumab and having metastatic melanoma completely regress uh, just after single doses in weeks. And I think these experiences really um, taught me how a physician scientist can have a tremendous impact on, on, on patients. So I think I've, I've um, really been fortunate to have uh, mentors throughout my career who have been surgeon scientists. Subsequent to those, um, several others have really um, contrib contributed to my, uh, my interest and, and um, my path. Uh, Stephen Leach uh, was another surgeon scientist here at uh, Sloan Kettering, who is a former director uh, of uh, the David Rubenstein Center for Pancreatic Cancer Research, um, who also um, influenced me uh, in, in my path. So I think short answer is um, find good mentors. Sound advice, for sure. So it has been a really interesting conversation. I Again, I always um so excited to hear about the immunotherapies of the whole type. So I think immunotherapy of cancer is having a, an amazing um, time at the moment. There's so much uh, going on and so many so many clinical trials of so many approaches to immunotherapy. And I think there's other types of immunotherapy for other types of diseases will also come. But I think we are reaching the end of our conversation. And we'd like to ask uh, our guests to let it, to tell us a little bit about themselves. Uh, and so there's a very popular question that we, we pop up, which is uh, if you were not a very successful, successful uh, researcher, surgeon, um, what would you be? Well, the, my initial um, desire as a child was to be a veterinarian. Um, I loved animals. Um, and uh, that was sort of my first first passion. And I think later on in high school, in, in college, uh, my interest morphed into more quantitative sciences. And um, I became very interested in math and physics. And I actually did my undergraduate degree in, in physics. And I was very close to pursuing graduate studies in physics as a career. So I think if I did not go into medicine, then um, that would have probably been my, my path of uh, graduate studies in physics. I was to make some joke, you know, the whole Oppenheimer movie, but I don't know, 
I, I don't know. We're gonna build this atomic bomb, but that that, that sounded more funny in my head. Yeah, hopefully my my contribution, if I had taken that path, would be slightly different. But yeah, I was gonna ask, well, what part of physics in particular, really, like, were you gonna do? Well, uh, the the aspects of math and physics that I found um, very fulfilling was the ability to solve a problem really accurately. So you can um, write an equation and solve it and you have an answer and you, you can check it and you know it's correct. Um, I found that very satisfying. Um, and that that was sort of, I think, one of the core core reasons that interested me in that in that in that field. Then why are you in biology? That makes no sense. <laughs> well, I'm 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 hoping that we can try try to have similar, you know, biology has its own challenges. It's it's so so much more complex. And it's oftentimes you don't get that um that a simplistic answer that you can get um in quantitative sciences. But I think that's part of the challenge to perhaps frame the question in a way that maybe you can um get an answer that is more clear um, and then gives you a path forward. So I think this is um, one, of the, one of the reasons why I find biology challenging and thrilling. I think that take care, takes care of it then. And I also agree. I, I, I like the cleanness of physics and math, but like the challenge of the fact that biology isn't that way yet. Right. So if you're looking for postdocs, you can advertise them here before we go. Or if you're looking for positions, uh, you can put a shout out. We're always um, uh, interested uh, and excited to, to um, recruit new people to our team. Um, we love curiosity-driven science. Uh, we love team science. Um, we love to work together. Uh, and our group um, um, is very passionate about what we do. So. Certainly, if you're interested, um, please shoot me an email. Um, we'd be happy to, to chat more. Great. Well, thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Brenda and Jason. And great talking to you. It was a great conversation. Thanks for joining. Thank you. This brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at, at immunopodcast or via email info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time.